Um, welcome tonight. I'm so glad you're here. And um, if you don't know who I am, I know we have some visitors. Um, I'm one of the people who's on staff at, Grant, at Campus Ministry. I am Jody, and I am actually a seminary student. And so my internship site is Grand Valley Campus Ministry. So for the last couple of years, I've had the privilege of hanging out with all you wonderful people, all you wonderful humans, as Matt would say. So, um, and looking at this, I mean, I think we have come a really long way with these people, the Israelites, haven't we? In less than 20 Sunday evenings, we have covered hundreds of years. So we started with the promises made to Abraham, and then we continued with the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and then they grew into an entire nation in Egypt, but they were in slavery. And so God did this dramatic rescue of them from Egypt and then brought them through the desert along the way, teaching them how to be his people and showing them that they could trust him along the way. And then finally, he brings them to this glorious promised land that he promised years and years and years ago to Abraham. But then in the last few weeks, we've been seeing how living fat and happy in this land with the kings running the show made it really easy for them to forget about God. And so Israel's downhill slide resulted in the invasion of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed the city. They burned the temple to the ground. They knocked the walls down. Nothing's left. Those who survived, many of them were carried off to Babylon to be slaves. So they were exiled from this promised land that God had finally given them. So if you were here last week, you may recall that Daniel and his friends were part of that group. And if you were here a couple of weeks before that, you might recall that God's messengers, the prophets, had tried to warn Israel that this would happen. And Israel just wasn't really very interested in hearing the warning. But funny enough, after they were taken to Babylon, they were really interested in hearing the promise that these prophets gave along with the warning. And that promise was that their exile would not last forever, that one day they would return to Jerusalem. So this is where we find ourselves in the story tonight. At the end of the book of 2 Chronicles, we get a nice little reminder of the prophet's um, promise, and then we find out what happens next. So this is what 2 Chronicles 36 verse 20 says. Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what the king, the king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go, and may the Lord their God be with them. And so just like that, the exile's over, right? A different king has come to power. This king is inclined to let people go back to the land that they came from. And so those who went back, um, they, have, they eventually went back, but they went in a few waves. So first there was a group of people who went with Zerubbabel, and then like 50 years later, a group went with Ezra, and then a few years after that, there was another group that went back, and they were led by Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah together lead the people through this rebuilding process. And by the time we get to Nehemiah 8, a lot of the work has been accomplished. And so now the question becomes... Now what? 
We came all this way, we rebuilt the walls, we rebuilt the temple, so why is it that we're here again? And so the people figure a good place to start is by looking to God. Great, right? They don't want a repeat of this whole exile thing. They want to start off on a good, on the right foot. So they get together in Jerusalem and they ask Ezra to read God's word to them. And so Nehemiah 8 describes how they stood together for hours as they listened. And for the next few weeks, they are reminded of their story. So they listen. They do a lot of crying because they feel so badly about how they got to where they were. They celebrate because they're joyful at hearing God's word again. And then they start doing some of the things that God had instructed them to do, like celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. So, after a few weeks of becoming familiar again with their story, the Israelites respond to God. And so that's Nehemiah 9, which is what we're going to look at tonight. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, Nehemiah 9, I'm going to start reading partway through verse 5, but I'm also going to be skipping quite a lot because it's a long chapter. And I think you guys, um, many of you know a lot of the details, and there's a bigger picture that I think we can see here. So... Nehemiah 9, verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, Vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished, 
and they reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your, in your sight. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. This is the word of the Lord. So after a month of remembering who they are, this is the picture they come up with. And it's not pretty. The Israelites kind of suck. Like, right? I mean, come on. Rebellious, disobedient, arrogant, stiff-necked. There's all kinds of adjectives to describe how horrible they were. And it doesn't matter if they've just witnessed a dramatic Red Sea rescue or if they've just gathered their manna for the 500th day in a row or if they've been living the good life in Jerusalem. They are inclined to say to God, thanks, but no thanks. Israel's been a total failure. But who can blame them, really, because waiting is really hard, even in ideal conditions, and they have been waiting a really long time, hundreds of years, seriously? Waiting for this rescuer who was promised at the beginning of time? Waiting for God to do something amazing through them? And they don't know what it's going to look like or when it's finally going to happen. Are they seriously going to have to wait another few hundred years with nothing to show for it? And in the meantime, they're probably going to fail again because they obviously have no idea what they're doing. And when they fail, what disaster will happen then? They just got done rebuilding the city, and who's to say they won't mess up and end up in exile with the city plundered and burned to the ground in a few dozen or a few hundred years again? So this is what sounds familiar to me. So much regret and so much fear because we know our story too, right? We kind of suck. We know that we screw up a lot. And we're also waiting. We're waiting for this world to be better than it is. We're waiting to live in God's presence someday. But we have no idea when it's going to happen. We have no idea what it's going to look like. And sometimes we're waiting in situations that are less than ideal, a lot less than ideal. And in the meantime, we have no idea what we're doing. We mess up a lot. And we beat ourselves up about it. 
we wonder, what if I screw up so many times that God just finally gives up on me? Last night I went to a party and got drunk, again. Yesterday my boyfriend and I went too far, again. Today life was too overwhelming and I stayed in bed all day, again. Last week I spent an entire evening on porn sites, again. Last week I did not spend any time in God's word, again. What if God just turns his back on me and my life just burns to the ground? The story in Nehemiah, what did it tell the Israelites? That they had been waiting a long time? That things weren't always ideal? That they had screwed up a lot? Yeah, sure. The story showed them who they were. Their story told them that there was no end to the number of times and ways that they would fail. But more importantly, the story told them that there was no end to the number and times and ways that God would extend grace and mercy and love. God is forgiving and gracious and patient and slow to anger and merciful and compassionate. Their story showed them who God is. And that's the part of the story that prompts their response. So take a look at Nehemiah 9, verse 38. In view of all this, so the whole story that they just told, the litany of all the ways they messed up behind them, but also this litany of all the ways that God came to them time and time again. In view of all that, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their, our, their seals to it. And then in chapter 10, they go on to spell out how they're going to live in light of knowing who God is, in light of what God has promised, in view of all this. The Israelites didn't respond to the view of the part of the story where they had been waiting and things weren't always ideal and they didn't know exactly how this was all going to turn out. They didn't make their binding agreement in view of the part of the story where they kept messing up. They were able to live in view of the part of the story that told them who God is. One of the reasons that we tell stories here at the well is because they help us to see that part of the story that's most important, that part about who God is. And so it seemed like a really great idea tonight to be reminded of those stories that we've heard so far this year. So we've asked some of our friends who have shared their stories already this year, and if they would like to come forward, they're going to give us a recap of what their stories were about and remind us of what we stand in view of. So for anybody that forgot, for six years, I wandered around ignoring God. I would ask for the occasional sign, and I would get it. Looking back now, I can see that. Um, it wasn't until I came here that finally, I think God was a little fed up with me, and he was like, okay, I'm just going to hit him in the teeth. And he did that. And ever since then, I've been here, and I've been happy, and I'm forgetting what I need to say now.
In view of all this, I learn about the God who wouldn't let me go. I'm back again. <laughs> uh, um, for those of you who don't remember, <laughs> basically, God gave me people in a place who saw me for me. Um, and I, I would go on more, but I'm going to start crying again. So, um, in light of all this, I see the God who cares about me and gives me a family. Um, I struggled with years of anxiety and broken relationships um, and feeling that I'm not enough. But in view of all this, I serve a God of peace who says that I'm more than enough. Uh, for many years, I struggled with sexual sin, pornography. Uh, and since coming to Grand Valley, meeting people, uh, community that are strong in Jesus, I myself have grown stronger with Jesus. And in view of all of this, I trust that God has a plan for my life. I shared the story. I'm sorry I went to camp this weekend. <laughs> um, I shared the story about spring break and all of the relationships that it brought to my light, life um, and the good that came from that. And in view of all of this, I am learning that the same God who gave me those relationships and circumstances um, is the same God who has now changed those circumstances. And even if I don't understand why, he is still good. Uh, I shared my story the very first week at the WOW, uh, in which I was coming out of a really challenging circumstance for work and for life as I was working in Haiti. Uh, and the Lord called me back to a place that I love, to a community that I love. Uh, and so in view of all this, I trust a God who makes a way for me. So can we live in view of all this? Rather than living in view of the ways that we've messed up, or in view of the fears we have about not knowing exactly how things are going to work out, or in view of this idea that we're one wrong choice away from God turning his back on us? Can we live in view of who God is, in view of who God has proven to be, in view of the promises that God has made? Because God provided the ultimate spoiler alert. This part of the story that we haven't covered yet in our series at the well, but the part that a lot of us already know, Jesus, who came into this place of waiting with us and who showed us what it looks like to live in light of knowing who God is and who died and rose again to secure our future and just remove those fears and then allow us to rest in view of all this. So when we live in view of that part of the story, what might that look like? How might that change the way that we live? I've been gone a little bit this semester. I took a trip earlier in the semester um, to Louisiana with a professor and some fellow students from the seminary I attend. And so I went to um, Louisiana State Pen Penitentiary, um, better known probably by its nickname, which is Angola Prison. 
And this professor has been visiting Angola a few times a year for the last 10 years or so. And every other year or so takes a group of students um, to see what's going on there. So it's a maximum security prison. It has more than 6,000 inmates. It's on a piece of land about the size of Manhattan. It's actually a large former plantation. And most of the men there are serving life sentences without parole. Many of them have been there 20, 30, 40 years, some of them 50. And over the last 20 or so years, there has been a revival going on. And inside the prison, there are more than 30 organized churches. And they are churches that are, they've been started and they are run by inmates. And inmates, there are pastors who have been trained at the seminary that started offering classes there about two decades ago. So while we're at Angola, we attended worship services, which happen every night of the week, multiple places, multiple locations. And we met with some chaplains and professors at the seminary. But the part that was really inspiring was when we got to talk with the pastors and the members of the churches because we heard their stories. These are men whose life is nothing but waiting. These are men who sit in view of the worst parts of themselves every day. But the way they live, they are living in view of who God is because they have met Jesus and they know who God is. And that view of the story just changed everything. In one of the most difficult situations I can imagine, they radiate peace and joy and kindness. And not only have they themselves been changed, but they are changing the place and the people around them. There's hospice care and mentoring and job training programs, all that have been started by people who have been changed by Jesus. Inmates who are sent by their congregations to other prisons because that's their mission field, and they asked to start a church there. I can't even begin to describe all the amazing things that are happening, but the reason these men are living the way they do, where they do, is because they know who God is. And they know who they were, but that's not the part that's important. They know who God is and what God has done and what God has promised to do. And the way that they live, they are bringing hope to everybody around them. So when we live in view of that part of the story, what might that look like? How might that change the way that we live? I think it looks like living out of courage rather than fear. I think it looks like rest instead of spinning our wheels hoping that our own efforts are going to save us. When we're depressed or anxious, it might look like picking up the phone to ask someone to come sit with us. When we're living a stretch of the good life, it might be pausing when we start to pat ourselves on the back. When we're stressed, it might look like noticing someone beyond ourselves who needs to hear a different story. When we're tempted, it might look like finding someone to share our story with. When we're heading out on a spring break trip, it might look like walking into a place with the humility of expecting to learn, someone, learn something from the people we meet. 
when we're bored with the monotony of regular life. It might look like just being grateful for the daily blessings. Living in view of the most important part of the story looks like life instead of death. It looks like hope for us and for those around us who desperately need to see what it can look like to live in view of a different part of the story. It looks like our lives becoming worship. So before we move into worship again, to sing together and to celebrate that life together and living in light of who we know God to be, Lord God Almighty, creator and redeemer and counselor who is gracious and compassionate and patient and slow to anger and abounding in love. Sometimes our view is obscured. Sometimes we think too much about who we are. And when we think so much about that, we forget about who you are. Please help us to see you. Please help you to be the view that we have. Please help us to know what it's like to live and to rest in that part of the story. Amen.